Welcome back to Problematic Women, a show that showcases strong conservative women, current events, and the hypocrisy of the feminist left. I'm Bree Payton, staff writer at The Federalist in front of The Daily Signal. And I'm Kelsey Harkness, a senior news producer with The Daily Signal. Today we're going to talk about this Laura Ingram and David Hogg debacle, Indiana Jones becoming a woman, and Planned Parenthood president CEO Cecile Richards spilling the beans on her off-the-record meeting with Ivanka Trump. We're also going to talk about the New York Times' sexist meeting chairs and an NFL cheerleader who got fired over an Instagram post. Kicking it off with our That Happened segment, which covers the more hypocritical news stories of the week, we're going to start with the serious trend of genderless parenting. In what sounds like a full-time job, New York Magazine did a deep dive exploring the progressive parents who are jumping through serious hoops to prevent their children from becoming gendered. The article titled, It's a They Be, it's but the... the it's a baby so baby is instead of baby it's a baby really confusing so this is the whole title it's long it's a baby is it possible to raise your child entirely without gender from birth some parents are trying so go ahead sorry this is what the article says okay so it says for a small group of a growing cohort of parent of parents, one who see their gender as a spectrum rather than binary, the unisex movement of the 60s and the gender neutral parenting trends that have followed have come up woefully short. For them, society's gender troubles cannot be solved by giving all children dolls and trucks to play with or dressing them up in the color beige. Ooh, beige. <laughs> I like <laughs> the beige. Gender binary must not simply be smudged, but wholly eradicated. From the moment that socialism begins, socialization begins, sorry about that, clearing the way for both the child's future gender exploration and for wholesale culture change. It also says when it comes to preschool and daycare, many of the most progressive par- places are also the most expensive and still may not be progressive enough. Leah Jacobs, the parent of a gender creative toddler. <laughs> Gender creative is a thing. Yeah. Named Scout, whose family recently moved from the Bay Area, parentheses, very gender open, to Pittsburgh, parentheses, far less so. Far less so. (laughs) Tells of going to visit daycare providers and waiting to drop what she knew could be a bombshell. Quote, we don't really do this whole gender thing. Do you think... Uh, do you think you could use gender neutral pronouns for a child? She asked these daycare centers. So there, this is a whole long article in New York Magazine. I encourage you to read the entire thing. It's quite scary in my opinion, but I think it's such an interesting and important conversation because it's not just telling society live and let live. If you buy into this whole um, gender neutral ideology, then you can do that. This actually involves parenting parents forcing their beliefs and ideologies on other people and businesses such as daycares. The question is, who has the right to resist? Do parents do daycares? Um, And interestingly enough, one of the couples who the New York Magazine featured um, in this story actually has an Instagram account for their genderless child. And in one of those pictures, they put their genderless child in a pink I stand with Planned Parenthood shirt. So, Brie, what I thought interesting about this was that they're not okay assigning a child to his or her biological sex, but they're okay assigning uh, a very strict set of of uh, political beliefs on that child um, about an organization that actually kills one million child 
every year. I'm not going to share where that Instagram account actually came from um, because I don't want to encourage any bullying or trolling of that very innocent child, but it's out there, New York Magazine. They chose to go public, so you can read more about that story there. So David Hogg, one of the Parkland shooting survivors, student at that high school, um, he went after Laura Ingram after she made a comment about an interview that he gave in which he admitted that he hadn't been accepted to a number of colleges or that he had been waitlisted to a number of other schools. And he led a systematic effort to harass and boycott the companies that sponsor Ingram's shows, uh, which led to several companies withdrawing their commercial support for Ingram. Critics say that Hogg's efforts are ushering in an Orwellian reality where you can shut down other people whom you disagree with. Yes, there's now been a mass boycott of Laura Ingram's show, and we will see what happens with that. Our next That Happens story this week is is the story of Indiana Jones could be turning into a woman. Steven Spielberg apparently thinks the action legend should be a girl, did an interview with The Sun, um, and The Sun reported, quote, Spielberg nodded when asked if this new look Jones could be female and added, we have to... and." We have to change the name from Jones to Joan, and there would be nothing wrong with that. I thought Jones was his last name. Yeah, it right, like Indiana is the first name. Jones, oh, sorry. It doesn't, no, it doesn't really work. Um, so St- Steven Spielberg is 71 years old. He's been a vocal champion of the Time's Up campaign for gender equality in the movie industry, which is really interesting that that's, you know, the son calls that gender equality. I mean, um, I think Time's Up isn't just about gender equality. Um, it's really against standing against sexual harassment and um, and the systematic abuse women. of women. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, it says he's no stranger to powerful women. Um, the filming for this movie will begin in April 2019, and we'll see whether or whether or not it's a boy or a girl. This will be very interesting. Maybe it'll be a baby after all (laughs) instead of a woman. All right. So from Politico's morning media newsletter that was sent out a couple of days ago, the New York Times recently remodeled its page one meeting room, swapping the long conference tables editors traditionally huddled around as seen in the movie page one for couches, pillows, glass walls, and an overall more casual vibe. But the updated setup isn't yet settled as Time Stuffers has raised issues about the lack of microphones to project at meetings and the hard surfaces to take notes. And some women in particular has ex- have expressed concerns about comfortably wearing skirts in this new configuration. So Politico went on to say some staff members raised concerns when furniture was not moved into the new meeting space. Um, a Times uh, that came from a Times spokeswoman they all, who also said, we are taking those comments into account and are considering changes to the proposed new format of the meeting and the furniture. The spokesperson also pointed out that the entire newsroom is being renovated and the process has been led in a large part, ironically, by women. So, Brie, I have to ask what you think of of this little um, gender debate playing, off at, playing out at the New York Times. Yeah, so, I mean, I don't know why they didn't foresee issues like not having hard surfaces to ride on. If you get rid of hard surfaces to ride on, like, it would make sense that, you know, you're not going to have hard surface to write on. If you're setting up couches, throw pillows, all these other things, 
that could be an issue for individuals wearing skirts. I just, I guess I don't see how the project got this far along without the people leading the project, the women who are designing this room, seeing those potential obstacles playing out, right? Like, this is just very weird to me. I don't know. Maybe they'll end up setting it up like a classroom where there's like a bunch of desks lined up. I don't know. I think Who knows? Is, I think this is another example of a fight that has been you, you sort of labeled as gender equality when it's it's not really about gender equality. It's just how do we how do we perform our jobs the best and is sitting on couches without spaces to write the best for men or women? Probably not. But at the same time, we do all have laptops. And I think as women, more of us do wear dresses and skirts. So couches can be problematic. I understand that. But then you also have to realize that it sounds like a lot of women were leading the charge to have comfortable couches right, there to begin with. So saying. this really shouldn't. It, it's not like men versus women. I think that the media tries to frame it like that. It's just a conversation between people of all kinds. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe, maybe even some babies. <laughs> There's some babies in there. Maybe it was the babies that picked out the furniture that doesn't <laughs> work with skirts. I could see that. All right. When Well, when we come back, we will move on to our next segment called This is What Feminism Looks Like, a segment where we hold up what we believe are positive examples of feminism in society today. And we're back, and we're here with Ariel Davidson of the Hoover Institute and contributor at The Federalist. And we're going to talk to her piece, talk to her about her piece on Cecil Richards' off-the-record meeting with Jared and Ivanka. So, Ariel, tell us what happened. So, essentially, a meeting took out. Uh, Ivanka and Jared had reached out to Richards and requested a meeting with her. And she agreed to go under the supposition that her husband could join her as well. And the four of them met and basically... Jared um, presented Ivanka with a deal, with uh, presented Richards with a deal and said, you know, if you're willing to stop performing abortions, then we will see if we can work out a way that potentially you might get a bump in funding. Um, and he even offered to speak to House Speaker Paul Ryan. And so this was sort of a interesting moment because Richards interpreted it as a bribe and she proudly and adamantly turned it down. And I thought it was interesting because she she shared this expose or this rendezvous in her uh, new memoir that's come, that just was made public called Make Trouble. And it's interesting because I think she sees it as this like high note for her and this moment of pride when the reality is, is that most people are seeing this and thinking, well, first off, they're thinking uh, you turned down increased funding because you wanted to save, quote unquote, 3% of your services. So we hear constantly all the time how Planned Parenthood performs abortions and how abortions are only right. 3% of services, right? And so to see her, you know, basically turn down the prop- proposition of increased funding for the sake of protecting the abortion industry, because um, it's around one-third of Planned Parenthood's revenue, is was pretty astounding. You know, I think it's the service that Planned Parenthood provides. It's not one of many. It is the service. At least that's the sense that I got. Uh, from that interaction. And the second thing I noted is that, you know, Ivanka is someone who's constantly in the press um, for the idea that she might be a Democrat, she's a closeted liberal, all sorts of accusations. And and some of them, you know, a lot of them are very reasonable. Um, But I think that this is kind of a high point for Ivanka because, you know, we do see that uh, she was making moves at least to um, end, you know, government funding of Planned Parenthood or end government funding of abortion. 
right. you know, money is fungible. So this is, you know, they always say, well, it's not federal funds aren't going to abortion services. But if you think about how much money we give to Planned Parenthood each year, there's no way that you can, you know, section off compartmentalize money. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that was the brunt, that was the thrust of the piece. But, you know, I just thought it was interesting that Richards is so disconnected from the American population in terms of what people, how people actually feel towards abortion. I think I noted this in the article, but, uh, Maris polls came out last year and said that, you know, nearly six in 10 Americans think abortion is morally wrong and a super majority of Americans do not support federal funding of abortion. And I think over 80% do not support funding abortion overseas. So, yeah, yeah so um, I, a huge fraction of the population. Yes. Yeah. So I think really it illuminates two things that are really illuminating about Planned Parenthood and Cecil Richards herself. Number one, she's really out of touch with what most Americans think about abortion. Uh, you know, most Americans, as shocker. you said, yeah, most shocker. Cecil Richards view on abortions right. is extreme and different from most shocker, Americans. Not the, the majority of Americans don't want to rip babies apart in the womb when they're like a month from being born. Right. And they don't want federal funds to pay for it. And it also illuminates as you said, that 3% number that gets thrown around so often, Planned Parenthood is always saying that abortion only makes up 3% of what they do. Uh, and so you are right in saying this is really odd and interesting that Cecil Richards is willing to c potentially cut off funding for the entire organization over a mere supposed 3% of what their business is. You know, I think that this conversation, and Kelsey, jump in, feel free to jump in, but I think that this conversation really sheds light on the fact that listen, this is the nation's largest abortion provider. This is what they do. This is what they specialize in. Let's not pretend that this is something else. And also, let's not pretend that this organization really cares all that much about women's health, because if they really, really were concerned about it, that would be the priority of, oh, we're worried about potentially funding yeah, being cut to women's health. Yeah, we'll take, we'll that take money. the money. Yeah, yeah, you would take the money if you cared about women's health. I mean, you know, Planned Parenthood performs around 320,000 abortions per year, which translates to you know, roughly 160,000 women each year, you know, baby girls are gone. So <laughs> this is how Richard sees herself as a champion of women. This is what her organization does. So I wasn't surprised that Cecile Richards declined to partake in this bargaining game. I was surprised by two things. One, Richard's decision to make this conversation public, which was an off the record conversation that happened a long time ago. I think she is hurting her credibility by releasing the details of this conversation in her book. Clearly, it's it's probably just about wanting to make money. I think it's wanting to make money. And secondly, I think it's um, I, I think one of her goals in releasing this conversation is to encourage far left women to um, increase their um, hatred for Ivanka. Yeah, and spurn the notion of compromise altogether, right? That's really what this is, to radicalize the really already kind of radical supporters of Planned Parenthood and say, look at what they're trying to do. Isn't this evil and awful and so terrible that they would even think about doing this? You know, let's go after Ivanka. Let's go after Jared. Let's go after anyone who, you know, maybe personally is kind of okay with pro-choice issues, but is willing to compromise in order to keep the federal funding and keep taxpayers happy. And Ariel, well, I agree yeah. with you that um, this actually is going to make a lot of Americans, specifically um, a lot of conservative Americans, actually like Ivanka more because I think for so long, so many of us weren't sure where she stands on issues 
um, such as life. And even if she's not fully pro-life, this shows she's willing to stand up against government-funded abortions and is actually willing to have a reasonable conversation with Planned Parenthood that, hey, you can continue your services if you don't force taxpayers to pay for this. And, And actually, her husband, Jared, was involved in those conversations as well. And he's another person who we don't often hear where he stands politically or morally on these issues. So ironically, I think uh, Cecile Richards thought she was going to get favorable press by releasing the details of this conversation. But if anything, I think it's just going to make more Americans and American women come to Ivanka's defense. Oh, absolutely. And it's sort of like forced Richards to put her money where her mouth was. You know, if you constantly say that Planned Parenthood provides other services, well, here's money for other services. And she's like, nope. (laughs) So it's sort of, in my mind, it's one, again, it's one of those watershed moments where you sort of start to see um, the true nature of the situation. And you start to recognize that, you know, Planned Parenthood really does pride itself on its abortion industry. And that really is the primary moneymaker. And it's, um, you know, a prominent uh, part of their the services and the activities that they perform there. So it's just, you know, I thought, again, it was a very revealing moment. Um, and like you said, Kelsey, it, I agree 100%. I think this is going to be um, something that will be defining for Jared and Ivanka, in ter- in, at least in the conservative mindset of where they stand on issues. It's a little bit, you know, again, it's been pretty murky lately. So they needed this. And in a lot of ways, this, this expose actually helped them, I think. Uh, and it made Richards look like a fool. So. There's that. <laughs> so, so while we have you on the phone, since we are in the middle of our podcast, Problematic Women, we wanted to ask you, sorry for putting you on the spot, but we want to know, do you identify as a feminist? There's some women who maybe lean more conservative that reject that term and others that say we need to take it back. So we were curious, where do you stand as a female writer and economist involved in many political and policy related conversations? Right. So it's interesting. I, um, you know, feminism, the word feminism has been hijacked by third wave feminists and it's taken on a sort of nasty, almost like religious cult-like affiliation where, you know, abortion reigns supreme and there is no such thing as gender. And it's, you know, it's all sorts of what intersectionality has done to feminism is really tragic. But that being said, you know, I have a profound appreciation for first wave feminists. The one, the reason that I have the right to vote is because of first wave feminists. So I have a profound appreciation for feminists. Would I call myself a feminist nowadays? No, in the sense that the term has been completely owned and operated by third wave feminists. So for me to call myself a feminist carries all the implications of third wave feminism. And I disagree with that wholeheartedly. If we took the term back, then I would be happy to identify as a feminist, a first wave feminist that believes in equality between the sexes. But that's not what feminism stands at today. Um, A woman who I have a ton of respect for that does a lot of writing in this field is the AEI scholar, uh, Christina Hoff Summers. Mm -hmm. And her work is phenomenal. I, I think she would be somebody whose mindset and attitude towards feminism and, and her ability to try to bring it back to the right is, is really, is wonderful. Um, but it hasn't been done yet. And so I'm really cautious to use the term feminist because it carries all sorts of, you know, awful implications just because third wave feminism has done such a number to the term. Um, but like I said, I owe so much of my, you know, my education and my advancement to first wave feminists. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm not someone that 
outright dislike feminism because I wouldn't be where I am today without it. But the way that third wave feminism has manipulated the movement is just tragic. Um, and it makes it hard to have conversations where you say you appreciate feminism, especially on the right, without you know people getting really upset with you. So you have to make that distinction between first wave and third wave. I could not agree more. I think we are on the same wavelength with that response. We get a variety of responses when we interview women on the show, which I love. And I have to say, I'm pretty on board with you. Right. Okay, good. I have to ask, are you guys feel comfortable using the term? I think we need to win it back, but I agree. I'm hesitant to use it. You're not going to see me walk around with a this is what a feminist looks like t-shirt because of all the implications of what that means today. But I do think we owe a great debt of gratitude to the true feminists, the first wave feminists. So I personally, um, I'm with you on that. But Ariel, thank you so much for joining us. We love having you on the show. For those listening and want to learn or follow more of your work, where can they do that? Yes, you can find me on Twitter at Political Al. Um, it's kind of a goofy Twitter handle. <laughs> when I first joined Twitter like a year and a half, almost two years ago, I, I came up with that handle. But yeah, you can find me at Political Al. Um, and I the pieces in the Federalist and Washington Examiner and Town Hall on occasion. So you can find my stuff there. Awesome. Thank you so much. When we come back, thanks for having me. When we come back, we will crown our problematic woman of the week. And we're back. And now it's time to crown our problematic woman of the week. Okay, so a couple of weeks ago, an NFL cheerleader was actually fired over an Instagram post. So after she was fired, this prompted her to investigate and uncover the double standard that the NFL team, the New Orleans Saints, had imposed upon its players versus the cheerleaders. So the Saints team had instructed its cheerleaders to never fraternize with players. And this included no interactions on social media. If a cheerleader so much as followed a player on Instagram or liked one of his posts, this was considered fraternizing. Kind of crazy. Yeah. So apparently, while all this was going on, a tipster told the NFL higher-ups that they spotted a blonde girl belonging on the cheer squad who was spotted at a party where a player was also at. Heaven forbid. Right. (laughs) Yeah, and she claims that she was in Florida at the time of this party and she wasn't even there. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, so this put her on thin ice with the company and with her job and with the higher-ups, okay? And then... Later, she decided to post an Instagram selfie of herself, kind of in like a sexy lingerie getup. And this was the straw that broke the camel's back. They were like, you're already on thin ice for, you know, supposedly fraternizing at a party or, you know, even making us think that you were there with a player who was also there. Now you posted this uh, selfie of yourself, uh, a revealing selfie on Instagram you know, we are going to have to just fire you and let you go. And this was after the team forced all of the cheerleaders to make all of their accounts private. Um, And, you know, so this was a private Instagram post. It wasn't public. Anyway, so she gets fired. After she's fired, she gets in touch with a lawyer who tells her to get a copy of the employee guidelines for cheerleaders and for the male players. After reading through them, she notices that the players were not held to the same standards. The players weren't told to keep away from the cheerleaders. The cheerleaders had to do all of this themselves, had to put up barriers, had to, you know, if a player came up to try to talk to them, they had to be the ones to leave. So it really put all of the pressure to keep 
um, these individuals apart on all of the women. So she is saying that this is unfair and she's filed a lawsuit with the EEOC, which is going to be played out over the next couple of months slash years because these things take a lot of time. So we'll see the end result of all of this. Kelsey, what are your thoughts on this situation? I think the cheerleader, her name is Bailey Davis, our problematic one of the week, raises a lot of really good points. I I think it's strange that contractually the onus is put on women to the women, the cheerleaders to stay away from the football players. The onus is not put on the football players to say you cannot get involved with the cheerleaders. First off, I don't know why the NFL needs to be involved in people's personal lives, but I'm sure things have happened and it has led them to make that decision. It's sort of like I see it as having an office policy regarding people dating in the workplace and how you can sort of have a policy about that. But at the end of the day, a lot of people actually do meet their loved one (laughs) through work and end up marrying them. So I think it's very strange first off that, you know, they're not allowed to socialize with the football team because you actually in high schools, the cheerleaders and the football players are very close in colleges. Um, But secondly, I'm on her side. I think there's a huge double standard that um, that the onus should not just be on the women. If this is the policy, then the onus should be on the the football players and the cheerleaders to keep that line separating the, the two. What do yeah, you think? Absolutely. I think, you know, if you want to put in a, a standard that says no fraternizing between the cheerleaders and the players, like, okay, that's fine. That's your decision to do that. But I totally think that uh, the responsibility to maintain that should be on both the players and the cheerleaders. I don't see why the cheerleaders should always have to be, you know, the ones doing that. And also, I think that, you know, the standards that they have were maybe a little too aggressive. Like, I think forcing all the cheerleaders to make their Instagrams private, I think that that could potentially hurt their career. Something really strange is going on there because they are in a very public position. Right. And... Um, the, the, being a cheerleader, an NFL cheerleader, that is your career. Right. And so, of course, you're going to use your platform um, to get your name out there so that you're established in your industry as this successful cheerleader, as a successful dancer. And um, if you can't, you know, market yourself uh, on social media, they're not allowed to even say that they're a cheerleader on social media, let alone um, it seems like they're they're being watched over by their bosses um, for the types of pictures they post. Yeah. I, I and, sort of, under, I, I, th- that's an interesting question though. How, what can you, what right do your bosses have to say uh, that picture was inappropriate? Yeah. Well, okay. If you saw the picture of her in like the little lingerie thing, honestly, that long, that like negligee that she was wearing is more modest than the cheerleader uniforms that they have them wear. Agreed. It wasn't Which that are bad. really revealing. The we still didn't uniforms. want to show it here, but it wasn't that bad. Yeah. It was like, okay, I don't understand why you're upset when you make her wear less clothes while on the field, while on TV. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. And second of all, like, uh, yeah, so that whole thing was just really but bizarre. But at the same time, I do think your employer does have a right to say, like, look, if I go post some really ridiculous pictures, right. like, I, I mean, mean, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. yeah, imagine what would happen if either of us did that. I, I, I think fairly we're going to be whole, held accountable for that. But in the industry that they're in, right. to be told that they can't post pictures showing off their figures when so much of their entire career is based on their physical appearance – 
seems a little strange. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. It's pretty odd. Pretty odd. Pretty odd. We'll be following this one. Um, but that was a that was an interesting problematic woman of the week to be covering. Um, that wraps up our show for the week. Thank you all for tuning in. And as always, if you know a problematic woman, please let us know. You can follow my work and tweet ideas to me at the Daily Signal and at Kelsey J Harkness on Twitter. And you can follow me on Twitter at Brie underscore Peyton. And you can read all of my work over at thefederalist.com. If you like this podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is a collaboration of The Daily Signal and The Federalist and is produced by Lauren Evans of The Daily Signal, who you can follow on Twitter at Lauren E. Evans. We appreciate you sharing Problematic with your friends and for supporting strong conservative women who are standing up for America's culture. 